Yes, Dad. We don't want to just be plain church here. We don't want to just have a nice Sunday morning because that's the thing we do and that's part of our routine. Um, During worship, we were just reminded that this is more than just a religious ceremony that we participate in. This is a lifestyle. This is something that we pursue with you and with one another. And we just want to invite you right now to come and show us how very near you are right now. (laughs) The priority is you. Not to hit everything that I've got in my notes, not to hit everything that uh, that we've planned together to say. The priority is you. Just uh, pray for myself that uh, you would give me clarity and that I would only speak the words that you put into my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's just make, switch this thing on. Today, I want to talk to you about as he is, so we are. Now, this is a passage directly taken from 1 John. However, while preparing this, I was like, ah, cool, okay, so I'll preach on 1 John. That makes sense. Um, But uh, then God was like, no, I want you to talk on 1 Peter. It's like, okay, cool. Um, So a little bit of a curveball there. Um, So I'm not actually going to be using the phrase that is titled to this thing. But one of the things that I really want to focus on is as he is, so we are, even when it sucks. Because 1 Peter is all about... How do you live a victorious life when things don't quite go your way? When things aren't quite um, the way you would like them to be? So um, I'm going to go classic uh, preacher man here on this one, and we're going to do some juicy exegesis. Yes. Uh, We're going to pretty much be sticking entirely within 1 Peter, Um, I'm going to give you a wider context of 1 Peter, uh, and we're going to break down the structure of it, and we're really going to try and isolate, rather than just necessarily what I want to sort of put onto the book, what we can kind of extract from the book as such. Um, And so we will dive into 1 Peter. Um, So um, 1 Peter was written by a guy called Peter, who, go figure, I know, it's very, very surprising. Um, And uh, this was written for the early church, early Christians. And he wrote it um, while he was in what was a code name for Babylon, um, as he describes it in the letter, um, which uh, essentially Babylon started to become by this point in Jewish tradition the Uh, phrase you would use for the big great city of your time where um, uh, oppressive, uh, non-God-fearing civilizations were sort of their center point, was the capital cities of oppressive nations, essentially. And the greatest oppressive nation to an Israelite, uh, to pretty much everybody in Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, and North African uh, time was Rome the Roman Empire. So when he talks about Babylon, what he's really talking about is he's in Rome. So he's writing from Rome to churches specifically 
in what's described as Asia Minor, Asia Minor being what's described pretty much as modern-day Turkey. Um, so he uh, also wrote this with the help of a man called either Silas or Silvanus, depending on whether you were Greek or whether you were giving him his Hebrew name. Um, and um, what would often happen is you would have, I'm really enjoying this thing, um, what would often happen is you would um, have the uh, apostle write an epistle, um, say Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, Romans, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, all of these different epistles, which are essentially just letters that these apostles are writing to different churches. Uh, and um, these letters would be shared across lots of different churches. They would originally be written for a particular set of churches within a certain province or within a certain area. And then the teachings of them were so effective and important that they started to get distributed to other churches in other areas as well. So despite the fact that they were specifically written, and 1 Peter was specifically written for uh, churches in Asia Minor, it would then spread all over the Roman Empire. Now what then would happen is copies would be made of these uh, letters. And amongst with these copies, other letters would start popping up and appearing. Um, if you ever look at uh, the apocryphal books of the Bible, some in the New Testament as well, which have different letters that aren't part of the sort of canonical Bible that we work with. Um, these are all kind of pop up at this period of time. And this starts getting very confusing for the early church because there's a lot of contradictory teachings that you're getting from lots of different um, letters of different people with different claims of revelation. Some saying, I have revelation because I saw Jesus in a bush. Other people say, I walked with Jesus for the uh, 30 years that he was alive, so I've got a lot of revelation. So lots of people having different forms of claims. And essentially what then happened was in 325 AD, I like my history, um, the Emperor Constantine wanted 50 copies of a canonical Bible. He wanted people to actually go like, right, give me 50 copies of what is actually like all the, uh, the, uh, the teachings together in one place. So they had to decide what books went into the Bible and what books didn't go into the Bible. So um, a lot of uh, different church leaders, um, lots of people filled with the Spirit, started to chat amongst each other to find, try and figure out like, okay, who and what books should go into the Bible. Uh, and their argument behind having one Peter in there was because he had a bit of a strong claim being one of the original 12 disciples. Um, so you would kind of think like, he's probably got a decent insight into what Jesus was like, the sort of things that Jesus would teach. And you can hear a lot of the echoes of the Sermon of the Mount, a lot of things that are in the, um, in the uh, Gospels, pretty much directly ripped into a lot of what Peter has to say in the letters that he sends through. So, um, 325 AD, they make the decision, ah, this is the letters that we're going to work with. And personally, I have always had a bit of soft spot for Peter. And that's not just because he's another Simon. Um, he also was known as Cephas in some areas of the Bible as well. In 1 Corinthians, they talk about him as being Cephas, or Cephas, or however you pronounce it. Um, 
But despite becoming an apostle and a leading figure in the early church, throughout the accounts of him in Acts and other um, books as well, he doesn't seem to have liked confrontation much. Um, and I can relate to that very well. Um, there's a, a certain personality traits that he exhibits that I find very relatable, which did get him into quite a bit of trouble from time to time. So um, the uh, old uh, disagreement on the old snip snip in uh, Galatians 2, 11, 13, um, where essentially he um, didn't assert the fact that God had actually brought the gospel uh, to all people and that you didn't need to abide by Old Testament regulations such as circumcision. Um, that actually um, that wasn't the marker of whether you were a, per, uh, a part of the people of God. You didn't need to get the old snip snip. Uh, but Peter didn't stand for that and Paul sent him a, a very harsh rebuke in the um, form of a letter and also some other folk as well. And of course we have the classic the big avoidance of confrontation when he denied Jesus. I always feel like we give him a bit of a hard time. It was a night where, he, where his main religious leader is currently being executed. Um, everybody was, uh, all of the people that he'd spent the last three years with had uh, abandoned each other uh, and pretty much, you know, the, the whole precedent of somebody else bringing themselves back to life after death well, that hadn't really happened much previously. Um, so uh, in that regard, it seemed very, very hopeless. But again, he's avoiding confrontation in that situation. He's not standing his ground and saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. I followed him for three years. It's like, no, thank you. Disassociate me from that man, which was in Luke 22, 57, 62, and John 18, 15 to 27 as well. Um, and yet... When um, the uh, order, uh, during sort of the um, great persecution of Emperor Nero um, of Christians during it within the Roman Empire, some accounts um, talk about how Peter was essentially executed for his faith um, and stood his ground in this instance. Um, and different accounts uh, claim differently, but um, a sort of church tradition states that when he was sentenced to crucifixion, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was, and so requested to be crucified upside down, um, which is intense. Um, so he was clearly a very brave man. Um, and this is the man who's writing this complex and difficult letter to a, um, a people group within Asia Minor during the Roman Empire. Um, I, but again, he's so, he's so brave, there's so much about him that he has accomplished in his life, but he's also very, very human, which even before getting into his book and just knowing his story is very encouraging. Um, one of the great apostles of the early church was just a, another human like you who uh, had his hang-ups, who had certain personality traits that exhibited themselves and sometimes was problematic, but a lot of the time was able to do incredible, incredible stuff for the kingdom of God. Um, 
So, he, uh, the letters that he sent at the beginning of the book, he says, hi, uh, I am Peter. Thanks for that. Um, and uh, he then said, he sends the letter to provinces in Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, and Bithynia, um, which are uh, catchy names for places. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to have a look at the overall structure of the book. Now, the reason we're going to have a look at the overall structure of the book is because it can be very easy to take a sentence from a book of the Bible and take it completely out of context. If I write a book to you, if I, because something strange has possessed me and I decide to write a book about how much I like apples and how great apples are and apples are important, but to offer a, a, you know, a good counter-argument, I have a sentence in there that says, that quotes somebody who says, apples are awful, and that is a verse in my book that I write, then somebody else can come around and just take that one sentence and says, Simon says, apples are awful. Despite the fact that the entire rest of the book is me claiming the wonderful nature of apples. Now, that sounds ridiculous, but it's something that is done a lot of the time with the Bible. Um, very often, people just take a sentence, go like, ah, that fits my worldview, fantastic. Takes it out and work with it, and we run with this one sentence. Um, and with that, it's always very important then that we do actually understand the wider context of a specific book in the Bible. So, what is the wider context of the book of 1 Peter? Note to self, don't use yellow in future instances. Sorry about that, guys. Um, so, um, chapters uh, 1, verses 1 to 2, are the uh, salutation, which is the same equivalent as when you guys write an email and you go like, hi, Simon. Um, in this instance, it's uh, from Peter to the provinces in Bithynia and uh, Cappadocia and all of these sort of places. Um, he then goes into the timelessness of God's favor which is a great place to start. Um, he uh, talks to this church who are having difficulties, who are um, experiencing a certain degree of persecution, and he begins with how the qualities of God are outwit the confines of time, that they are eternal, that, they are, uh, that there was no beginning and there is no end to them. Um, then he goes into the uh, words of comfort that he offers to them for their suffering, um, which is, again, obviously a really tricky thing to do. It's like, right, you know what? I'm going to write a letter to these people who are currently experiencing a huge amount of hardships. Um, and it, it, the letter itself is a really interesting example of how... Um, how we can deal with trying to help people who are going through a difficult time. Uh, then he offers instructions to holiness uh, and how to love out of the blood of Christ. Um, and then he goes into them being a holy priesthood, um, which is one of my favorite bits. Um, a holy priesthood who have received mercy and are offering a spiritual sacrifice. Um, to be the intermediaries between themselves, between God and all of creation. 
Um, now, again, the beauty of this is that this letter isn't just addressed to these guys who are suffering. This uh, is also principles that we can operate and work under as a church ourselves. We are a holy priesthood. Um, we are priests that can come before God, um, walk into the holy of holies of the temple, uh, meet God, the, the pure essence of God, the undiluted quality of God, and um, become the voice to the world about the nature of God. Um, we, he then commends them to live such good lives amongst the pagans. Now, this is a really, really cool bit. Um, because, again, it defies all, uh, some narratives that you find and some ideas that you find in the church, which is, you know, um, that you shouldn't, uh, what it means to not be of this world. But um, what he often talks about here is how important it is to treat your masters well and your bosses well and to honor them and to treat and honor your emperor um, and to uh, actually be constructive and not destructive to what they're trying to achieve. Um, he then goes into a bit that sounds very, very much like uh, Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount, which is to repay evil with blessing, which is in um, chapters uh, 3, verses 8 to 17. Um, and again, very much sort of repeating what Jesus said. Then he goes into Christ uh, suffered for sins and has angels, authorities, powers submitted to him. What he's doing there is creating a wonderful juxtaposition. He's talking about how here is Christ the sufferer, and here is Christ the king. And um, this is a very traditional sort of idea of this juxtaposition you find a lot in Jewish writing, which uh, points to opposite notions together to communicate a, uh, a truth that you create by putting them against each other. So he's talking about you are suffering and you're going through difficult times like Jesus did, but also like Jesus, you have authority and uh, you have been given power in the heavenly places. Um, live according to God in regard to the spirit and not of this world, which is a phrase that you'll probably be very familiar with if you've read your Bible. And glorify God through using your gifts. This is cool again because um, this is all about how he talks um, about how to use hospitality. If you have the gift of hospitality, use it. If you have the gift of teaching, use it. If you have this gift, use it. Use it to build each other up. Use it to encourage each other. Use it to help one another. Um, and then he goes into... Oh, wrong one. Do good amidst suffering. So we're, we're seeing a reoccurring theme here. There's an admonition, there's an encouragement to the people um, of these churches to ensure that they, um, their behavior and their relationships in particular with one another and with people outside of the church look a certain way. Um, there's an encouragement to not allow suffering to diminish their standards of relationship. Um, and then there's also an encouragement to continue to pursue God in all of that. Um, elders, be examples to your flock. So he uh, specifically talks to the leaders of the church. Uh, he then talks to the church at large, um, young ones, us young'uns, um, and uh, encourages them to submit to their elders. Um, and then he talks about 
I know you guys have got a lot of anxieties. I know you're going through a really, really hard time, but cast these anxieties onto God. Um, and then he goes on to say, be alert of the devil. And then the internal glory of God makes us strong, firm, and steadfast. That's where he ends it. So he begins it with the timelessness and the eternal qualities of God's favor. And then he concludes it with um, the eternal glory of God being something that gives us a ability to be strong, firm, and steadfast. And then he concludes it with the final greeting, um, which is all about um, just, you know, listing out the people that helped him, like Sylvanas, to write the letter. So, that's one Peter for you. Um, well done. You're all still awake. Proud of you. Um, now, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine and picture yourself in Peter's shoes. You are the overseer of several churches. Now, this map's maybe a little bit misleading because now you're thinking there's only one church in each region that he's sending this letter to. He's writing to the churches in the provinces. These aren't cities. These are larger provinces in Asia Minor. So there's lots and lots of uh, churches he's writing this letter to. And there's lots of churches that he's responsible for, that he feels responsible for, and that he oversees. These are mostly house churches. Um, so uh, these will be uh, merchants. These will be tradesmen. These will be uh, craftsmen. These will be a wide range of different people who own houses of different sizes, who are inviting other people to their houses to have meetings and go to each other's houses as well. Um, they are um, tight-knit communities. Some of these people are losing their jobs because of the fact that in order to say yes to Jesus, they can't be participating in the sacrifices of Roman and local gods, and that is part of the process of being able to get the job. Um, and some of these people are now in a position where they um, are slaves to pagan masters. And as a slave, you pretty much need to do what your master demands of you. Um, so how do they deal with the conflict? Because if you deny the wishes of your slave, you can get executed. Uh, your master, sorry, you can get executed as well. Um, so... These are house churches, and you're sending these letters to these churches that you feel responsible for. You are then, um, and these house churches, this thing called the church, which we talk about a lot, is a new thing. This happened in Peter's lifetime. This is when it started. He, his friends, and other fellow Christians began this whole thing. They left Jerusalem, and they're like, great, let's go to Asia Minor, let's go to Rome, let's go to all of these places. Um, so they've been there. And they are connected with these people. They know these people by name. They write their names out in the letters that they send to them. You and your other friends, your other fellow Christians, you've all had very profound and powerful experiences of God. And what you're trying to do is to ensure that other people around the world can share in those profound experiences. So you make a point of staying connected to these ever-growing house churches that you've started in the different regions of the Roman Empire. And difficulties arise. Many believe you to be a fad. 
You're a strange, weird sect. Um, and um, what you're doing is you're following the teachings of a nomadic madman who was killed by his own people in the little outskirts of a Roman province. That's how people read you. Um, you there was a, a person who most people believe to be dead now because he was successfully executed, but you and your little sect are trying to insist that he rose back from the dead. Um, between your group of people, you're starting to experience schisms in these local churches that you're sending these letters to. You're lots of people are coming up with very, very different ideas. You've got um, some who believe that, no, stop telling non-Jewish people about this gospel. It's only supposed to be for the Jews. It's not supposed to be for the rest of the world. While others say, no, we should be, te we should be telling it to all the Gentiles and we should be teaching it to everybody. Um, some believe that Jesus wasn't actually a man. He wasn't a human being. He was some intangible, ephemeral, spiritual being that kind of wasn't really human and um, stopped talking to him about him actually being human because that's blasphemy. You can't have something be human and God at the same time. Um, and you, as Peter, have heard about these difficulties. Um, and these churches are all based in um, hotspots. A lot of them are based in massive cities that are on major trade routes and are, are major trade destinations. That They are rich with resources. Um, they have a lot of things going for them. And they've got a vast variety of temples and shrines to Roman and local gods. Um, and that's the culture. And that's the context in which Peter is sending this letter. Um, and this is the context in which they're finding that they have difficulties. They are experiencing grief in all kinds of trials, as Peter put it, puts it in um, chapter 1, verse 6. And so he writes this letter. Now, the cool thing is about this is um, different scholars disagree as to what exactly is happening here, but um, based on how it's written, a lot of people say mm, it might not have been entirely just Peter Silvanus, the guy who he was um, reading, speaking it out to and was writing it on his behalf, um, probably had some hand in how it was written, which um, other people argue against because you don't, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit and you don't need to do that. I quite like the idea because um, one thing that it does is it reinforces that the apostolic gifting comes in the context of relationship. So it's not necessarily got a difficulty with the idea of an apostle working together with somebody else to write a letter. But that's just my opinion. You don't need to necessarily take that on board. Well, you don't really need to take any of what I'm saying on board. Um, so... What I find really interesting and what is he's in this context, right? He's got all of these things that he, he I mean, there's so many things he could address here. He could be addressing how are, are people going to deal with, um, you know, uh, the, the, the Gnostic ideas that are coming about where everybody's thinking that um, Jesus might not be human. There's all sorts of different things he could be focusing on. And they're different letters that do focus on some of this other stuff. 
But Peter decides to focus specifically on the areas that he does. And I think it's important to ask the question, why on earth does he decide to pinpoint those areas as opposed to all the other things that he could potentially be saying, uh, given the fact of the cultural context that he's sending this letter through? Um, so, he writes this letter, or rather, um, the big theme, sorry, that runs across this letter is the fact that these churches um, would largely have not had Jewish Christians in them. These would be mostly Gentile churches. And they were intricately connected with the story of the Jewish people. Constantly, throughout the letter, he's reinforcing this idea. He's using imagery throughout. I mean, he uses the word royal priesthood. He could use a completely different word. But he's constantly using images, Old Testament images. The, the book is riddled with references of Isaiah, Psalms, and Proverbs. He's, coming to, he's reinforcing the idea consistently that actually the people of these churches are grafted into the people of God. Another pointer, even before we really start digging into this, that we can take away from this is we can often ask the question, what on earth is the point of the Old Testament? <laughs> it's not the nicest read always, and it uh, paints a pretty weird picture of God sometimes. Um, one of the things that it gives us is it gives us all of the very ancient promises of God that have been around for thousands and thousands of years and the confirmation that you are the fulfillment of those promises. Um, you're not disconnected from the narrative. You are grafted into the narrative. And this is what Peter's trying to reinforce. Um, so, again, yellow. My apologies. Um, in these different chapters that we have. We have um, this idea that they are the fulfillment of ancient prophetic promises, um, the great promises of old. Uh, Abraham promises onto Abraham, promises to David, promises uh, to all the great characters of the Old Testament, which, again, remember, these people are not um, Jewish themselves, so they don't necessarily have that much of an educated idea as to all of the Old Testament stories. They need to be told them because they are all, they've all been converted from pagan religions in Asia Minor. Um, they haven't had the advantage that you guys have had, which is read the Old Testament, then read the epistles. The epistles themselves are very often potentially amongst their first introductions to some of these verses in Psalms, in Proverbs, and in Isaiah. Um, so again, he quotes Isaiah later in the chapter to commend them that they are now eternal beings and not of perishable seed. Again, it's all about the eternal quality of God and how that eternal quality is now yours. That you aren't going to die when, you, when your body dies. That your soul and your spirit will continue on. That actually... You are more than just flesh and blood, but there is a soul and there's a spirit inside of you that will continue. Um, and not only that, but that the quality of this unperishable seed um, is one that starts impacting your life now and not just after death. But that it's not just about the length of your life, but it's about the fullness of your life. 
and that that can expand and grow. Chapter 2, he commends them for being a royal priesthood. I've talked about that a bit now already. Taken into the role of the position between the intermediary between God and the rest of his creation. And again, lots of um, quotes of Psalms, Proverbs, and Isaiah. Oh, press the wrong button. What Peter's doing is he's getting in touch with all of these people who are going through a really, really difficult time. And he is contextualizing their suffering. He is... He doesn't disregard it. At the very beginning, I mentioned to you, he, 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 he starts off with comfort for their suffering. He starts off telling them, okay, I hear what's happening to you. I get it. Um, be comforted. Um, uh, don't be anxious. Put your anxieties onto God. He is giving them words of comfort, but he doesn't then stay there, but instead he seeks to raise their head above the parapet and to show the people that these churches and also this church can have a life that is far more expansive than this present moment. It's a life that has been um, part of God's design from the beginning of creation and will continue to be part of God's design. The timeless quality of God is the timeless quality of your life. And this little blip and this little moment it's just that. It's just a moment, and it will pass. Well, in Peter's own words, translated in the um, English Standard Version, that is, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It is so important when we're going through a difficult time, if we're wanting to live a victorious life, to have a sense of perspective and to have a sense of the fact that we have a hope that never perishes. It's not to disregard the pain. It's not to disregard the suffering. It's not to disregard the fact like, even if, it, if, if people are telling you, or you uh, there's a voice in your head to say, oh, this is a minor thing, I don't get why I'm feeling so bad about it, that's not the godly voice. If, it, if it's causing you suffering, it's causing you suffering, and that's valid and that's fair. But it is just a temporary moment. There is something greater, there is something bigger, that we are, uh, we are the inheritors of an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, and never fade. And he reinforces this point throughout the entire book. But there's two things, if in all of this, that you take away. I'd like you to take away. Ooh, I like how the light is making it really hard to read. <laughs> so in case you can't read that, point number one is he's constantly reinforcing the theme of the meaning of the church. And he's constantly reinforcing their position in Christ and their identity in Christ. And I believe that if you're going to be talking about victorious life, you have to talk about these two things. Because 
Um, if we are to be reproductions of Jesus to the earth, we are, re, uh, we are Jesus to the world, even when things aren't quite right for us, we need to um, be able to understand what is the actual church and what is our position in Jesus and what is our identity. Now, um, in the modern world, we have a very individualistic um, perspective. We, we um, believe in the sanctity of the individual. This makes sense. We've, uh, as societies, have been subject to governments and systems that have constantly told us that the individual isn't important and that it's just about the collective and the nation and the people and some very vicious people have done some very awful things with that ideology. So it makes sense that we actually have reacted to that and we said, no, actually the individual is important. And the individual is. But the problem is what we've done is we've now taken it to the other extreme. And very often what happens is Christians will argue that they can experience the totality of the Christian existence as long uh, as their own individual walk with God is all right. It's hugely important that your own individual walk with God is all right. But the reality of the situation is that it, it requires also an intricately connected church for the true purpose and identity of your life to manifest itself in this life. Yeah. Um, it requires an intricately connected church for our true purpose and identity to manifest itself in this life. So we can't talk about being victorious, and we can't talk about just um, living in a victorious lifestyle if we don't talk about being the church as well. And this is why Peter makes such an important point of this. Suffering doesn't give us meaning in life, but it, one thing it does do is it gives us a little bit more focus as to what the meaning of life is we get down to some very basic questions about what is the actual thing that we're here for. What is the things that we can do without and what are the things we can't do without? And what, one, what Peter's trying to encourage them to do is one of the things you can't do without is an interconnected, functioning, and united church. That's an, kind of a bit of a non-negotiable. Um, so... And this is why Peter spends so much time on how to do relationships well in this letter. There's like a whole bunch of stuff in this letter about, like, you know, things that seem pretty obvious. Don't be a hypocrite. It's like, thanks for that. I think I could have figured that one out myself. Um, but again, he's writing to people who are operating on different moral codes. He's writing to people who have a pagan background. They don't have the Judeo-Christian backgrounds that you all have. They are operating on a completely different moral spectrum. They need things to be spelt out pretty straightforwardly to them. Um, so, and here, I think, is a beautiful example as well of how the Holy Spirit uses the quality of a person that in some instances caused them to stumble. I talked about how Peter was quite non-confrontational. But now the Holy Spirit uses that quality in him to start speaking the truth of Jesus. Because he starts talking about 
um, his reticence for aggression and confrontation becomes a commendation for returning evil with good. Chapters two and three are about how to live amongst pagan masters, emperors, and difficult fellow Christians like husbands and wives uh, and elders and young folk. So essentially, he's covering the bases, uh, gender differences and age differences. Um, and how do we reconcile the differences between those th uh, two? Um, Peter has this to say. Finally, all of you will be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For, quoting Old Testament now, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? I love, love that last bit. Because it really defies this notion that you can often hear that, oh, the world is so awful, you can be as good as you want, you're always going to be repaid with evil. But actually, Peter's expectation here is, look, if you guys do good, more often than not, you're going to get a response of goodness to back to you. Goodness breeds goodness. Um, and you don't need to put yourself in a victim mentality. You don't need to put yourself under a martyr syndrome where your only definition of value that you get of your faith is that because you're being persecuted. No, if you are breeding goodness, around you, that is a sign of the touch of the kingdom of heaven in your life. So actually, Peter's expectation would be, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now, he does go on to say straight after that, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're also blessed. <laughs> so it's not, you know, every single time that you do good, you're always necessarily going to get a, a happy, chappy time coming your way. But he is trying to insist that your motivation isn't people's response. Your motivation is something that's coming out of your heart condition. Um, so Peter tells the church that it's intricately woven into the fabric of Old Testament promises and Old Testament instructions. As he's gradually encouraging them to tie the knot even closer to one another and to be even more united. And I think it's a potent reminder for us when we, think, when we see that things aren't quite right. It's very easy within survival mode when things aren't going right to, again, break it down into the core elements of your life and just do the dishes, walk the dog, um, say hi to uh, yeah, make sure that you call your mum if you have to, uh, you know, all of these different things, maybe make some food, but probably not actually cook it, but just put yourself pizza in the oven, um, and all of these different things, but just make sure that the key things are happening in your life. Um, and again, Peter's just trying to encourage them to push for, even in that moment of difficulty, for church unity. Um, ba -da -ba -da -ba. 
Peter's so uh, keen to ensure that there's relational harmony between Christians despite their trials, and it's important that they seek to honor those within their church and that they also honor to seek those outside of the church as well. He talks about emperors, he talks about masters, he talks about people who are pagans, and he talks about honoring them, doing good to them, despite the fact that they might do evil to them. Survival mode might demand of us that we are just kind to those who are really kind back to us. Um, But to be victorious, to live that victorious life, to live as Jesus is now, is to live in the radiance of the risen, exalted, and enthroned Jesus, and to show love to all. That is the one of the qualities of the exalted Jesus is that his forgiveness and his love is available to all. Um, Yeah, I don't need to worry about that bit. So just skip that. But where does the resilience come from? Uh, This ability to be a united bride as um, the bride of Christ as we often talk about. How do we walk into the glorious unity that we have in Jesus, the victory of being like him and seated in heavenly places? Well, this is kind of where Peter ends the letter just before he goes into his uh, final greeting. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Some commentaries, what they'll do is they'll say, uh, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you. There's a good number of commentaries that say, oh, that's the afterlife thing. He'll restore you and you'll have a great life after you're dead. Um, But there's nothing in the text to say either way. It doesn't suggest it's definitely after death or it's in this life. And there's so much in other texts that suggest that the gifts of God and his glories are for us now. Um, that actually it is through our understanding of our position in Jesus that we have been raised up with him in the heavenly places that we are able to live a victorious life and a functioning relationship dynamic between each other. So this restoration in a place within the eternal glory of Christ And you know, seasons come and seasons go, and we are encouraged to humble ourselves, therefore, unto God's mighty hands, that he may lift me up in due time. I love the fact that we had a worship song that pretty much talked about putting your hand in God's. Um, It is that idea that in due time, within the grand perspective of... um, the, the vast glories of God and the vast timeless favors of God that um, we have the ability, even when things aren't quite right, to still live victoriously, that we can still have incredible relationships, not with just with each other within the church, but outside of the church, uh, and that we can bless others with uh, pursuits for miracles and for uh, a greater and fuller life. So, it looks kind of counterintuitive. Love that can only be born out of intimacy with a father. Love that is born out of being victorious and close 
it on it with the throne with God. Um, in a community that is determined to express itself as the body of Christ, that it is. You know, victorious living isn't a self-help mantra with some helpful Bible verses put in there. Um, it's actually, it's a life that understands what the church is and how important it is for the church to pursue one another. Uh, and you can't separate healthy relationships from a miraculous lifestyle as well. If we're pushing for miracles, if we're pushing for more of God in the supernatural, we also are pushing for better relationships. Um, because those two are intrinsic to our identity in Christ and also um, a functioning church. Because amidst generally awful relational dynamics, uh, those turning healthy is a miracle in and of itself. Um, in order for this to be victorious through the blood of Christ and the gifts of the Spirit, as Peter talks about, we need to understand that we operate from a place of eternal glory. Right now. Not when you're dead. Right now, you're operating from a place of eternal glory. Which we can participate with God in. Going to skip a few here. Because I've gone over time. Right. For the strengthening and the restoration and the comforting and the establishing of the kingdom of God. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.